Well, good evening. I don't know if you could really call it evening right now, but we welcome you to our evening service here at Surtur Reformed. If we haven't met yet, my name is Pastor Naman. I'm one of the assistant pastors here at our church. Um, and we've been going through, we just started a brand new sermon series that our evening service here through the book of 1 Corinthians. And Pastors Joseph and John uh, walked us through chapter one these past two weeks, and now we find ourselves here in chapter two. So I'll read our passage for us this evening, and as is custom here, after the reading of God's word, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, if you would respond with thanks be to God. So let's read God's word, 1 Corinthians chapter two. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God." Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages of our glory, for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person, which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? but we have the mind of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. So again, we find ourselves in chapter 2, and you hear Paul talking a lot about this dichotomy between wisdom from the Spirit and wisdom from mankind, wisdom from human beings. That's kind of a little bit of what we'll investigate tonight. Um, You know, if you give me any free time to kind of watch something or if I'm kind of scrolling through some of these platforms of streaming, one of the one things that I love kind of defaulting to is like sports documentaries, right? And one of the common themes that you'll see running through a lot of these great teams and players of the past is, yes, it's, it's, it's really nice to have extraordinary talent and to be really good at your craft, but one of the common themes that runs through a lot of these documentaries are those individuals or those teams who can default back to what we'll call their bread and butter, 
right? When you can hone in on the craft where you can kind of go through this tried and true method <clears throat> of not having to necessarily reinvent the wheel, but kind of be able to execute the plan and, and what you're good at, chances are you're going you're gonna to end up pretty well. So when you look at Phil Jackson, the, uh, the heralded basketball coach and his triangle offense that led the Chicago Bulls in the 90s to six championships in eight years. Or when you look at a player like Derek Jeter and his patented opposite field approach. Or this might be a little bit of sacrilege to mention here, Tom Brady and his no-huddle two-minute drill, right? Um, for those of you who are not sports fans, maybe all of this is going over your head, but sticking to your bread and butter, sticking to your gun, sticking to what you're good at. And why I bring that up is that what if we were to consider what is our churches, what is our traditions, what if even our denominations bread and butter? If you consider our church, if you consider the PCA, what, what are the kind of tried and true methods of what we do and how we do ministry? And oftentimes it's, it's, it's solid preaching. It's, it's sound orthodoxy. It's making sure that we're kind of <clears throat> doing well in the things that we want to put forth from the pulpit or, or even in our curriculums, right? Uh, and even if I were to kind of frame this under the lens of the Trinity, of the Godhead, we excel. Our bread and butter is God the Father and God the Son. We're very good at pushing those two persons of the Trinity. But when we consider that third person of the Holy Spirit, it may be where we fall and falter a little bit. It doesn't help that one of the defining aspects of our particular denomination is this doctrine called cessationism, right, which we'll talk about later in the book of 1 Corinthians, but this idea that we believe that the, the extraordinary gifts of the Holy Spirit of prophet, tongues of healing, prophecy, um, have ceased, cessationism. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we as a church believe that the work of the Holy Spirit has ceased. But oftentimes, that's kind of how it's received. Like, where, where have we ever talked about or mentioned the Holy Spirit? And we may have heard it from tonight's liturgy because the sermon is, is crafted around the work of the Holy Spirit. But uh, chances are, on any given Sunday, it's, you might not even hear the word or the name of the Holy Spirit called upon. In the midst of addressing the Corinthian church, Paul, what Paul is doing is trying to address a lot of the divisions that are happening, uh, the factions that are growing within the church. And these factions were developed by these people following, the church members following certain figures, for certain <clears throat> uh, rhetorical leaders, certain people who are influential, and this idea of following human wisdom. But what Paul is trying to put forth is the work and wisdom derived by the Holy Spirit. But there's a very much a very clear distinction and difference as to what we are capable of, what man is capable of, and what God is capable of through His Spirit. And that's what you heard in the text tonight. So we'll investigate this in three ways. Is what difference does the Holy Spirit make? How does the Holy Spirit make a difference? And where can we see Him at work? What difference does the Holy Spirit make? How does He make a difference? And where can we see him at work? And so the first question, well, to jump right into it, what difference does the Holy Spirit make? And very simply put, everything. Now, I wish I could just stop my first point there and move on to the next one. But what, it, when we consider what difference does the Holy Spirit make, the answer is everything. 
If you take a look at your reflection that's printed on the, on the cover of your bulletin there, A.W. Tozer says, the spirit-filled life is not a special deluxe edition of Christianity. It is part and parcel of the total plan of God for his people. So oftentimes, particularly in our Reformed traditions, perhaps, <clears throat> we view the work of the spirit as this add-on as this luxury, as this deluxe part of this package that we receive as becoming a Christian, right? As, as so long as we believe in Jesus, so long as we believe that He died upon the cross, so long as we're moved to move towards God and, and move away from our sins, and then you kind of sprinkle in a little bit of the work of the Holy Spirit. That's kind of maybe how we might view our faith, our ministry. But what Tozer is saying here is the Holy Spirit is the one that enacts, applies, perfects all of that in us. <clears throat> Michael Horton says, in every external work of the Trinity, of the triune Godhead, the Father is always the source, the Son is always the mediator, and the Spirit is always the perfecting agent. That is to say that Everything else that the first two persons of the Trinity does cannot be perfected, cannot be applied to us without the work of the Holy Spirit. In the Gospel of John, Jesus promises us the helper that is to come. And when we read the helper in modern-day connotations is to think that, well, that's sort of the, this side helper, this luxury person, this kind of consultant that will come alongside of us. But just as helper is used in the context of the Holy Spirit and also helper is used in the context of Eve in the creation narrative with Adam, and as I myself as a husband consider my wife Sarah as my helper, I am very much aware that I would be lost without my helper. So it's not just to say it's this person on the sidelines kind of coming in whenever we need him, but the Spirit is the very one applying the work of salvation. The Spirit is the, very, is the one very much at work when we come to church, when we are gathered in community, when we are preaching and evangelizing the gospel to others. So we, when we consider the question, what difference does the Holy Spirit make? It's, it's everything. We can't do anything without the Holy Spirit. So as Paul says in the first five verses of this chapter, he came to the Corinthians, not proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, that is humanly speech or wisdom, but he decided to come to them not knowing anything. So Paul's kind of approach here is that I didn't come with anything but the power of the Holy Spirit. He came to the Corinthian church. He tried to preach them, and what he's saying is, if the only thing that he said was, Christ Jesus came to this world to save sinners, that would be enough, right? So even for me as a preacher, I could just stand here for the next 20 minutes and just say, Christ Jesus came to save sinners, and however that lands on you is the work and power of the Holy Spirit, now, there's a temptation to handle this in two different ways. The first is to not do anything at all, right? As we hear the gospel preached, as we <clears throat> consider what difference that makes in our lives, well, let's say, well, if the Holy Spirit is everything, then, then I don't have to do anything, right? If, if God is going to do it, He's going to do it, and He probably doesn't need my help. But we know that's not the case. God is inviting us. God is applying this to our lives. God is asking us to partake in the work of the Spirit. So that's one temptation. But the other bigger temptation is 
we don't really believe that. We don't really believe that the Spirit is the one at work here or the one applying these things. Certainly, we don't live like we believe it. Even as a preacher, I'm constantly battling between these two temptations, right? Uh, Certainly, I don't like coming here uh, ill-prepared or even blindly preaching. Like, I wish I could come here and just kind of flip through my Bible and see what page I land on and say, okay, I'm going to preach on this passage tonight. I, I don't have the acumen to do that. But the bigger temptation for me as a preacher is to kind of pour into the work and the preparation of it to say, okay, what sorts of deep theological insights and nuggets can I give in a way that is charismatic so that it can land on all types of audiences at all times? They say your average preacher spends up to 12 hours on a sermon every week, and that's just the time sitting and writing it, and when you consider all the times thinking about it, meditating on it, you have to distinguish between the dichotomy is how much of this am I trying to put forth a work that I could put my name on versus how much am I spending this effort and energy knowing that the Holy Spirit is at work and will speak through His words. And that's our way, that's our approach to life, isn't it? Oscillating between these two extremes uh, in the ways that we handle our work, in the ways that we handle our relationships, whether it's our marriages, our parenting, our friendships, our co-workers, and especially even the ways that we plan for our future. Do we believe that, well, God's got it in His hands, so I'm sure I don't have to do anything, so I'll just lay back and, and see what He does, or are we just kind of slaving away at the thoughts and, and the grind and the constant anxiety of thinking, Man, if I, well, if I don't care take care of this, I don't know what's going to happen, or I'm not sure if I trust this person enough to, to handle this, uh, maybe I'll just do it myself, right? So, we oscillate this between these poles of knowing or not knowing whether or not the Holy Spirit is at work. So, the proper understanding of the power of the Holy Spirit is that it motivates those who are idle to partake in His perfecting work, while it also humbles the overzealous, into thinking we're capable of everything, right? It it motivates the idol into being a part of what God is doing in our lives while also kind of humbling those who kind of have that temptation to think it's all on them uh, to do everything. As we read a couple weeks ago at at our staff meeting just in that room from Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. As we think about our relationships as we think about our work and everything that we have to do this week, how much have we reflected upon where is the Holy Spirit at work in my life and in the lives of those around me? So, when we consider what difference does the Holy Spirit make, He should make every difference in the world. So, how does the Holy Spirit make this difference? And certainly, we, again, we talked about the dichotomy between human wisdom and earthly nature and the spiritual nature, the spirit, the spirit wisdom. And we'll consider how he makes the difference in, in three different ways quickly. It's time, perception, and intimacy. As Paul says in verse 6, he starts off, yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. So, what is Paul talking about here is that earthly wisdom is limited to its time. 
that we would consider those who are extremely influential, people that we want to follow, ideologies that we think are going to rule our lives, those will pass away. Those are doomed to pass away. They're fleeting in nature. Yet, we believe the spiritual wisdom that we derive from the Holy Spirit, from God, is one that not only withstands the tests of time, but if it has existed way before we were even in thought, in creation. So, God was, a, God was at work long before we got here, and He will continue to be long at work after we leave. So, there's a freedom of knowing that our reality is not up to what we can perceive in our lifetime, but we are being part of this broader narrative of what God is doing, of what the Holy Spirit is doing. So, earthly wisdom is limited to time, but spiritual wisdom is not. It withstands the tests of time. Secondly, in perception, earthly wisdom is primarily sensory or what we can perceive versus a spiritual reality. And we see this in verses 8 and 9. Paul says, none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. So, it's not about what we can see with our eyes or what we can hear with our ears. It's naive to think that all of what we can perceive in or about the world is just limited to our own senses or even our our time here on earth as we do that. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, talks about the quality of life amongst living organisms on this world. And he starts from plants to animals, and then to human beings, right? So, if you think about what a plant might experience, a plant is, is planted in the ground and in, in the soil, and, he, and it grows, and it kind of, kind of exists through the process of photosynthesis, but it's hard to imagine a plant having feelings or, or a sense of identity or purpose in it beyond that. And then when you kind of move up that chain to animals, animals have the sensory kind of ability, but the ability to kind of process that or kind of move further with that. And then you get up to humans. But what Lewis says is that beyond human beings and beyond just what the the sensory reality is, there's something that we need to discern in the spiritual realm. And then he goes on to, to say his famous quote is, is, if I find in myself desires that nothing in this world will satisfy, then I can only conclude that I've been made for somewhere else. That when you consider this illustration of, of having a lion who has been caged his entire life or maybe has grown up in the zoo its entire life, and the experiences and the, experiences and the senses that this lion must must, <clears throat> must have in the zoo, and then you kind of release this line into the wild, it would be very tempting to think, well, this is a very domesticated line, and, and that's the only thing he knows. But in the very natural instincts of this line is, is to be a part of the wild. He, he may have grown up in, in, in captivity, but knowing that he has been made for something else. There's more to life than what we live around us. I'm just breezing way past these, but for the sake of time, Paul is, and lastly, is what difference the Holy Spirit makes is in intimacy. If we look with me in verses 11 through the end of the passage, for who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? 
So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit of who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we'll pause there for a moment. Our understanding of somebody, of somebody else, is limited to how much that person is willing to share with us, how much that person is willing to be vulnerable with us. So as we consider our friends, as we consider our spouses and our children, our deep desire and, and hope and ideal is that we would come to know them in the most deep and intimate ways. But still, to some degree, that is limited to how much that is reciprocated, how much that is given to us. But what Paul says here is that in Christ, through the work of the Spirit, we are known in the most intimate way possible, in the the most intimate way imaginable by a God who knows our deepest thoughts, who hears every heart impulse and sees us and still engages in this relationship with us. This is a bit of a morbid thought, but a lot of the times I think, man, if I died today or tomorrow, what sort of legacy will I leave? How will I be known? And I think about this question a lot primarily because of my kids. And I think, okay, so Bennett just turned three and Isabel is now five and a half. If I die tomorrow, what will be my lasting legacy to my children? And it's sad to think that if, if I did die today, if I did die tomorrow, come five years from now, come ten years from now, the, the memories of their father would be very fleeting, and it'd be very few. But it's to think about that, that potential loss of intimacy recovered, knowing that we are known, we are loved deeply by a God who knows all of us. And that we are not limited to what sort of relational capital and, and progress and success that we could build for ourselves in this world and this world alone during our time here. But we are part of a greater picture of knowing, of being a part of a God, being a part of the work of the Spirit who causes us to be beyond time, beyond perception, beyond any intimacy that we can imagine. So Paul says here that seeking human nature Seeking human wisdom is folly because it is limited. There are limits to it. And solely human wisdom is limited because it lacks the Spirit of God. True wisdom comes from the Holy Spirit. So you could sit there and hear the words saying, Christ Jesus came to sinners, and you could hear those words. You can try to process that cognitively, but without the work of the Spirit that extends over time, that extends beyond our senses and extends beyond whatever intimacy we can imagine, without the work of the Spirit, that work is not applied to us until the Spirit moves our hearts, the Spirit engages with us in in the ramifications of thinking about what does that actually mean for my life and do I find hope and joy in that? So how does the Holy Spirit make a difference? It makes a difference in, in the most infinite ways imaginable. And lastly, uh, as we close out here, where can we see then the Holy Spirit at work as, as points of application for us? Where can we see the Holy Spirit at work? So when we consider, <clears throat> for those of us who are Christian, the works of the Holy Spirit and what He is responsible for, think about your own testimony. Take a minute to think about it, how God brought you to Himself. 
as, as the pastor in charge of the membership process of our church, I have an extreme privilege of walking and guiding through each of our class members and attendees through a one-on-one session to hear their stories. And if you remember here, maybe we've done that in the last three years or so. And I have this, extre- I call it extreme privilege because I now have become in the last three years this, this funnel, this vantage point through which I get to hear all of the testimonies and, and essentially God's faithfulness of how he has worked in all of your lives, right? And so when you consider your testimony, when you consider how God has brought you to consider your own sin, how God has brought you to yourself, as God has brought you to proclaim the name of Jesus and find hope and joy in it, we have to pause and say, that was the work of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> so we, when we consider our past, but even in our presence, the convictions that you have now, the desires you have to want to do something, the desires or convictions you might have to reconcile with somebody that you've had strife or conflict with, this conviction that you have to see your sin in your life, to kind of be bogged down by it, but also have this desire at all to want to mortify it, to want to kill your sin in your life, and then conversely, and then move towards Christ, actually become more like Him. All of what I just described in your life is a work of the Holy Spirit, that without Him, we cannot do those things. We would not have the heart desire to want to move towards somebody, even though they have now wronged us for the 70th time in the same manner. So, the Spirit is work in in a very present way. And also, as we look towards the future, as we look towards what is ahead, as we look towards the doubts and the fears and the uncertainty and the anxiety that might exist there, the Holy Spirit gives us perseverance. He gives us assurance to know that those who have been called by God have been justified, and those who have been justified will be sanctified, and those who have been sanctified will be glorified, that we will one day be with God fully in communion with Him with new and restored bodies, so that as we look at the work of the Holy Spirit, past, present, and future, He is actively at work. And even for those of us who may be non-Christian or for considering non-Christian friends, we could still do the same exercise of past, present, and future. That as you think about your own past, what are the ways in which your heart is stirred to think about it? And if you're here and you're non-Christian, there's a reason why you must be here that maybe somebody invited you to come along, and that was a work of the Spirit to, to inst- 